Our topic for today, sex, lies, and Canaanite wives, inside the world's first intermarriage debate. There are handouts if you did not get one and you need one. Um, please raise your hand and Lois will drop it off. Lois, over there for faith. Our speaker for today is Rabbi Adam Greenwald. Adam is the director of the Lewis and Judith Miller Introduction to Judaism program at AJU, American Jewish University, the largest preparatory program for those considering conversion to Judaism in North America. Adam, how many people do you have in your class at the moment? About 300 a year. 300 people a year. And those people want to become Jewish, right? It balances off with the 3,000 a year that leave Judaism, right? We're working on it. Okay, okay. <laughs> Adam also serves as a lecturer in the Ziegler School of Rabbinic Studies and in AJU's Graduate School of Education. So if you are a TBT ninth grader and are interested in going to AJU one day, you talk to Adam. Um, in 2014, <laughs> Rabbi Greenwald was named, I, I, I'm going to read it the way you wrote it. <laughs> But those of you who know what he was really named, know. He was named one of America's most inspiring rabbis. Oh, that's the forward. Okay, that's fine. He was made one of, the, uh, one of America's most inspiring rabbis by the Jewish Daily Ford. But he was also named something by, what was it? What was it? He was named, believe it or not, what was it? One of the sexiest rabbis by, by what was that site? Jurodica.org. Look it up. If you're a TBT ninth grader, do not look it up during school hours. Um, Rabbi Greenwald previously served as the Revson Rabbinic Fellow at Ikar up in L.A. Uh, prior to ordination, he spent two years as a rabbinic intern at some small synagogue in Orange County named Congregation B'nai Israel. Some of you may have heard of it. His writing has appeared in the Washington Post and Jewish Journal, and he is a contributor to Shema, a journal of Jewish ideas, S-Blog, and Ziegler School's Today's Torah, as well as um, Jewish Values Online. With that, Sex, Lies, and Canaanite Wives. Do not look up Jurodica.com. Uh, Wait, can you say that again? I need to write it. No. <laughs> uh, Hello, everybody. It's really a pleasure to be down here. I realized when I walked into this building today, I've been to Orange County hundreds of times for Jewish events. I've actually never walked into this building before. Somehow, I've, I've been at TVT. I've been across the street with CBI Coastal a million times. Um, this is lovely. We could really use this up in LA, uh, where the JCC is falling down on our heads. This is really very nice. Um, and they have light. Wow. <laughs> All these fancy innovations. So, as Ari said, I am the director of the Miller Introduction to Judaism program, which is the biggest program in North America for people who are thinking about becoming Jewish. That's about 300 students a year. Over the course of our 25-year history, about 13,000 students have gone through the program, and something like 4,000 of them have gone all the way to conversion to Judaism. Four thousand new Jews out of this one office in the corner of the American Jewish University. I'm doing math in my head real quickly. That's 400 minyanim that weren't here before. That's more than every non-Orthodox synagogue west of the Mississippi River. Could make simultaneous minyan 
in all of the reform and conservative congregations in the Western United States, just on the new Jews constructed at the American Jewish University. I've been doing this job for about three years, so I've been thinking a lot about our borders and boundaries, about who we let in and what it means to belong to the Jewish people. Because I meet these incredible folks day after day who are doing something incredibly brave. They're thinking about crossing a boundary. They're thinking about joining a new people, about taking a new journey. I want to start by shepping a little bit of nachos on a couple of my students. Can I, can I do that? Is that all right? Before we get to serious text? I want to just tell you about three of them who I've interacted with in the last year. One of them is, I think he's 23 now, young African-American male, single, got interested in Judaism when he was the age of the ninth grader sitting in the back of the room when he was 14 years old, dated a Jewish girl. And he went to her house for a Shabbat dinner. And he said, I had never seen a family sitting around the table talking and singing for hours. I, I just didn't have that in my life. And so when he was 21, two years ago, he started biking up to the AJU, paying for his own classes with a job at Starbucks, and went through the conversion process. Six months after he converted, he went on birthright. Six months after he went on birthright, his Aliyah papers went through and he moved to a kibbutz in the north of Israel. He's back in town briefly while the army gets together their paperwork to bring him in. He wants to serve in the Golani Brigade, which many of you know is really a heroic unit in the Israeli army. Another one of my students, also from the same part of the San Fernando Valley, is a single woman who moved to Los Angeles together with her two sons from Colorado. They moved after she was divorced from her son's father. She was involved very deeply in a very evangelical firebrand, we would say in the Jewish community, for Brenta Christians, right? They're really on fire, folks, involved deeply in this community. And when she left the man who was abusing her, she was told there was no longer space in the church for her, that she was a fallen woman, she was a danger to the other men, so she came out to Los Angeles to start a new life, and she started sitting in the back of synagogues. She started sitting in the back of synagogues because she knew she couldn't go back to an evangelical community, and she wanted to have God. And so she'd come in, she'd sit in the back, and then gradually she started lighting candles on Friday night with her kids. And then gradually they started switching over from Christmas presents to Hanukkah presents. When she converted, now just about a year ago, she wrote a memoir that followed it, that covered her conversion process, which she self-published, and she called it Out of Egypt. This was her journey, very timely for this time of year, her journey from slavery to freedom, which she found in the mikvah. One other, I've got lots of these stories, um, is a Latino man who grew up in the Central Valley in California to agricultural immigrant parents, and he was an altar boy. In his teens, he came to the priest and told the priest that he was gay. And the priest said, thus ends your time in the Catholic Church. So there was no place for him in church. There was no place for him with God. He left God and religion for 20 years, moved down to Los Angeles, um, got involved in gay community and secular community in L.A., 
but had no connection with religion. And he was taking a tour of Europe together with his partner. And they went to Oscar Schindler's factory. Anybody been to Oscar Schindler's factory? They went to Oscar Schindler's factory and they were walking through and they got to that final room. Um, And he said, I heard somebody crying. And I went looking around for who it was. And he said, it took me a full minute to realize it was me. And he describes that moment as the moment his Jewish soul was born. He came back, he enrolled in an intro to Judaism class. He converted to Judaism. His partner was also a very lapsed Jew. They're now deeply involved in a congregation. I was at his adult bar mitzvah six months ago in a community that fully embraces him and welcomes him in. These are incredible people. And they're three of 300 a year. So I think a lot about what these boundaries look like, what it means to cross in, what it means to be a part of the Jewish people, to choose that, and what it means for us as a Jewish community to be porous enough to allow seekers to find themselves among us. So what I want to do over the course of the next 45 minutes or so is take a look at a long-standing controversy in the Jewish community about how open we're supposed to be. To what extent are we supposed to be a closed, isolated fortress holding our own against the world? And to what extent are we open and permeable, allowing people to tie their lots with ours? That's a debate that takes place today. That's a debate that took place in the medieval period among philosophers. That was a debate that took place 2,000 years ago among the rabbis of the Talmud. I want to go back almost 3,000 years to take a look at the first time that debate was argued out. Because before this time period, before about 25, 2,600 years ago, there was no formal procedure for joining the Jewish people. How did you convert in the time of the Torah? How did you convert in the time of the Torah? Yeah, you showed up. You showed up. You met a nice Jewish boy. You met a nice Jewish girl, and you were part of the community. Who's the first convert to Judaism? No, way before, way before. Abraham. Abraham chooses it for himself. Who's the first convert who converts for love? Sarah. Abraham gets this big idea. I'm going to go follow one God, and I'm going to leave home, and I'm going to go explore a whole new world. And Sarah says, he's a mashuga, but I love him. All right, I'll go. All right, I'll go. God doesn't talk to Sarah until much, much later. This is all Abraham's journey until Sarah comes along with him. And then time after time through the book of Genesis and the book of Exodus, we see our Jewish patriarchs, our leaders, marrying non-Jewish women. Some of the examples, after Sarah dies, Abraham goes and and marries again. He marries Keturah, not a Jewish woman. The rabbis say Keturah is Hagar. Keturah was actually, he went back to his first love. He marries a non-Jewish woman. Joseph marries not just a non-Jewish woman. Asenat is the daughter of an Egyptian priest. He marries a preacher's kid from Egypt. And she's the one through Joseph that give us Menachem and, uh, excuse me, give us Menashe and Ephraim. Those children who wouldn't count as Jewish today because their mother was Egyptian. Moshe, 
marries the wife of, marries the daughter of Yitro, who was a Midianite priest. It's actually interesting. They're not just marrying regular non-Jews. They're like Dafka marrying the kids of religious leaders. And interesting enough, it's Moshe's wife who actually insists on the Jewish content in the household. She's the one who does the circumcision because Moshe can't quite get around to it. She's the one who's leading the charge, not the born Jew. Over and over again through the Torah, non-Jews come into the Jewish fold with absolutely no debate, absolutely no discussion, certainly no condemnation. When we leave Egypt, we leave an era of Rav. We leave a mixed multitude of Jews and non-Jews together sharing a destiny. We have open and permeable borders through the time of the Torah and through our first centuries in our own land. Then everything shifts. And everything shifts. We're going to need to do a little history lesson. The TVT ninth graders are probably fresher on this than the people in the front half of the room. So forgive me for review for the old people. In 586 before the Common Era, the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom of the Jewish people, the northern kingdom had already been carried off by the Assyrians in 722. In 586, the southern kingdom of Judah is conquered by... Babylonians, by the Babylonians. The Babylonians come down from what is today Iraq. They lay siege to Jerusalem on the 17th of Tammuz and on Tisha B'Av, they level the city and destroy the temple and carry away a significant portion of the Jewish people into exile. The Babylonians actually didn't take everybody. They just took the elites. They took the educated people. They took the leadership. They left farmers generally on their land. But they took the top portion of the Jewish community, back to Babylon. It's in 586. Now that exile was short-lived because the Babylonians were conquered very shortly thereafter by the Persians. In 539, the Persians roll down from Beverly Hills in their BMWs and they level the Babylonian Empire. And the Persians had an interesting policy. The Persians were smart governors. They said to all conquered peoples, you can go home to your original land. You can worship your God. You can rebuild your temples. And all we ask in exchange is taxes and undying loyalty. But all we ask is loyalty and taxes The Babylonian exile itself only lasts about 40 years, 586 to 539. But something really fascinating happens. When the Persians say, you can go home, King Cyrus says, you can go home, most of the Jews in Babylonia say, thank you, but no thank you. After Not after centuries and centuries, but after 40 years, they say, we're actually quite happy here. We're doing well in Babylonia. Babylonia is the center of culture. Babylonia is the center of commerce. Babylonia, you can go to a museum. You can see a show. Why would I want to go back to what my grandmother calls Dredofenek, which means nowhere? Like, why would I want to go back to a backwoods, dusty place like Judea? I'm fine here, 
I'll send money. Right? That, that was the response of most of the Jews in Babylon. Most of them stayed put. This is the start of what's continued to this day of Jewish diaspora. That from this point on until actually some demographic surveys say maybe it just ended a year or two ago, the majority of the Jewish people lived outside of the Jewish land. From that point on. Which meant that we were in much more active touch with people from all different backgrounds. We're no longer living in our own little corner of the world. We're at the center of everything. And we're meeting people. And we're going to museums and plays with them. And we're drinking good Babylonian wine with them. And we're falling in love. And we're falling in love. In this moment, we have the first debate ever recorded in history over intermarriage. The first time anybody ever asked the question, is it acceptable, at least the first time anybody wrote about it, is it acceptable for people of one background and people of another background to make family together? Before that, at least for us, it wasn't an issue. Joseph and Asenat, great. Moshe and his Midianite wife, fine, all good. But when suddenly a huge percentage of Jews are living in a non-Jewish center, and those who are coming back are coming back with their Babylonian or Persian wives in tow, and their Babylonian and Persian or half Babylonian and Persian children along with them, suddenly there's a need for a conversation. Suddenly there's a debate. And at this time, two different sides of the debate crystallize, which I'll argue to you today, are continuing the same argument for the last 2,500 years. Let me lay out the two sides of the debate. Does everybody have texts? Yeah? So you'll see below the box, two quotes from Deuteronomy. Here I'm going to be unorthodox for just five minutes. Please forgive me. We are going to assume that that the Torah was not written down in one go, but that actually represents a development of Jewish literature over time. If that's not your religious belief, feel free to think about your favorite song for the next five (laughs) minutes or so. Um, But we are going to operate from the scholarly assumption that Torah is a document that develops over time. And what all of the scholars concur on is that Deuteronomy, in addition to being the last book of the Torah, was also chronologically by far the last book to be written down. By far the last book to be written down. There's debate about when Deuteronomy was written. Some people think it was written shortly before the Babylonian exile. Some people think it was written, including Richard Elliott Friedman, who wrote this wonderful book, Who Wrote the Bible, that if you haven't read, reads like a mystery novel. It's great. Richard Elliott Friedman makes the argument it's written right after the destruction of the first temple. Whatever it is, it's written later in Jewish history when we're already interacting in a big way with non-Jewish people. And Deuteronomy takes a different theological tack on the question of non-Jews than the rest of the Torah. Would somebody read this piece from Deuteronomy 7? Read it loud. Thank you. God 
Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. <laughs> Excellent. Well, not actually excellent. Pretty bloody and awful. Um, I won't make any comment about whether the first half of this comes out of BB's playbook or not. That's entirely for you. Um, but there's... Uh, I just lost half the room in Orange County, didn't I? Um, Deuteronomy has taken a hard line on those non-Jews who are in the land, those non-Jews we might be interacting with, don't connect with them, don't do business with them, don't talk to them, kill them if you can, and if you can't kill them all off, at very least, don't invite them into your home and don't invite them into your bed. We make a strong distinction between Jews and Goyim. Goyim. Those who are to be kept out. The other nations who are to be kept far from us. And then it goes on to say, No Ammonite or Moabite shall be admitted into the congregation of Adonai. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall ever be admitted to the congregation of Adonai. This is because they didn't meet you with food or water in the journey out of Egypt. Because they hired Balaam to curse you, you should never concern yourself with their welfare or benefit as long as you may live. Hard distinctions between us and them. Real quick, anybody remember where Moab and Ammon come from? These two people, what? Anybody remember where Moab and Ammon come from? You remember? They come from Jews. Which Jews do they come from? Lot. They come from Lot's daughters. Remember the story? Lot and his family lived in Sodom. They narrowly got out before the city was leveled. Lot's wife turns to a pillar of salt because she wants to stay in Pleasure Town. And Lot and his two daughters go off into a cave having witnessed the fiery destruction of their world. Lot's daughters conclude that the whole world has been destroyed and that they need to repopulate the world. And the only available man is... Daddy. The only available man is daddy, so they say, let's get him drunk and we'll take turns. This is not a story that generally gets covered in religious school classes. Let's take turns, and they both have sex with their father. They both conceive a baby in incest. One of them names the child Moav, Me'av, from my father. And the other one names the child Ben-Ami, which is really Ben Avi, son of my father. Just in case you didn't get the memo, Moab and Ammon are the descendants of incestuous union. They're the descendants of sin. They're the descendants of you. There are people to be that you go to and you say, from your earliest origins, you are treif, shrotzim. Right? You're, 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 you're out. You're really out. To the 10th generation, we don't admit you in. We don't want anything to do with you. Our incest-born neighbors. Deuteronomy is composed, say the scholars, around this time. 
around this time of exile and return, when we're interacting and the Deuteronomist wants to put up big walls between us and them. The other book that's written down around this time is the book of Ezra and also Nehemiah, but nobody reads Nehemiah. The book of Ezra. Ezra was the priest who led the people back from exile and famously gathered everybody, gathered the Jews um, together in the courtyards of Jerusalem, read them the Torah and gave an edict saying, Jewish men, leave your non-Jewish wives. Abandon your half-Jewish children. Leave them for the sake of God and Torah. I want you to just imagine for a second being in that gathering. I want you to imagine being there with your family and hearing the leader of the community stand up and say, your families are to be broken up. Your wives are to go off to God knows where. Your children are to go on to God knows where. Imagine being the Babylonian wife. Imagine being the half-born child. It's a tragic moment in Jewish history. Separate off. Break up your families for the sake of Jewish continuity. For the sake of purity of our blood. These two voices, the Deuteronomy voice and the Ezra voice, are voices that emerge out of the chaos of exile, out of the new paradigm of Jewish and non-Jewish interaction. But at the same time as these two voices are emerging, there are other voices that are emerging. I want us to take a look at those. For that, you'll need to flip your page forming the other side of the debate. The most famous of the texts written at this time is the book of Ruth. Now the book of Ruth ostensibly talks about the time way before, before the Israelite kingship, talks about the misty past. What I want to argue to you today is that Ruth isn't written way back in Israel's misty past. It's written in the midst of this debate sparked by the Deuteronomist and by Ezra. It's written after the Babylonian exile and what looks like a pastoral fairy tale, a sweet story about love, is actually a sharp-edged political polemic, is one of the greatest pieces of political propaganda ever written. I want us to take a look at it. In the days when the judges judged, there was a famine in the land of Israel. So a man from Bethlehem, which is in Judah, went to dwell in the plains of Moab together with his wife and two sons. The beginning of the story is a setup. It's a setup. We need to get this family into Moab and none of it makes sense. Where's the famine happening? Where's the famine? Israel, Israel, and specifically where? In Judah, Judah, and specifically where? In Bethlehem. In Beit Lechem, there's no Lechem. In the house of bread, there's no bread. In one of the more fertile parts of the land of Israel, there's no food. 
And so they pick up and move to Moab. Moab is the deep desert. If you go to the edge of the Dead Sea and you look out towards those hills in Jordan, that's Moab. Right? That's harsh land for a Bedouin to find their way in. That's not the place. You don't leave Bethlehem and go to Moab in search of food. It makes no sense at all. It's how you know it's a setup. We have to get them into Moab. It's like an East Coaster having a drought and coming to California. Right? It, just, it just makes no sense. And the setup continues. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. And his two sons were Machlon and Kilion. Machlon and Kilion, they're from the tribe of Ephraim, from Bethlehem and Judah. They came to the plains of Moab and they stayed there. Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. She and her two sons remained. They married Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth, and lived there for about 10 years. Then Machlon and Kilion died, leaving Naomi without husband and sons. We have to get rid of these men. They're not important to the story. Elimelech dies. Machlon and Kilion die. And how do you know they're going to die? You know? Yeah. Machlon means sick one. Kilion means dying one. If you name your children sicky and die, they're not going to last long. It's a setup. We don't care about them. What we care about is getting these two women into Moab. They, or rather, sorry, Naomi into Moab and collecting these two Moabite women to be part of her family, Orpah and Ruth. So she got up, that's Naomi, along with her daughters-in-law and left the plains of Moab, for she'd heard that God had taken notice of Israel and had given them food. Right, now we need to get them back. She and her two daughters-in-law left that place and they traveled on the road back to Judah. And Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, go back and return to your mother's house and may God deal compassionately with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And may God grant that you find comfort with another spouse. And she kissed them and they lifted their voices and wept saying, we want to come back with you. But Naomi discourages them. She says, turn back. What do you have if you follow me? I'm too old to give you another husband. What do you have in the land of Israel? Go back to your people. By the way, the line here, remain in chains. The word is you will become an aguna if you return with me to Israel. It's the first use, I believe, of that term. That's still a term in use for a woman stuck in this position of chained to a husband who may or may not be dead, chained to a husband who won't give her a get. So Naomi says to Orpah and Ruth, don't come with me and be agunot. Go, go back home. And Orpah turns and she leaves. Orpah, who we know well because she gave her name to Oprah. There was a dyslexic nurse in the delivery room. No, that's really how it happened. The mother said Orpah and the nurse wrote Oprah. And that's how Oprah got her name. But Ruth, you all know, comes along back with Naomi. And she famously says the words that people say when they finish my program, that some of you, if your converts said in front of your Beit Din, entreat me not to leave you or to keep from following you, 
For wherever you go, where you lodge, your people will be, and your God. There we go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And Ruth continues on with Naomi. Now let me recap the story for those of you who didn't study it this year. The ninth graders in the back could do a better job probably than me. Let me just go back through the story. So they get back to Judah, and these two women together hatch a plan to find a man for Ruth, to find support for Naomi. Naomi says, Ruth, go out, and I've got a rich cousin. Go glean in his fields, and he'll catch and catch his eye. And so she goes, and she gleans in the field, and she indeed catches Boaz's eye. And then Naomi says, I've got an even better idea. Tonight, when he's sleeping out on his threshing floor, go to him, lay down next to him, and uncover his feet. (laughs) Yeah! And maybe you'll find favor with him. And so Ruth comes and lays down next to Boaz and uncovers some part of his anatomy. Maybe it's his feet. And Boaz wakes up and says... My, what a pleasant surprise. (laughs) And the next day goes out and announces that he's found a wife. (laughs) Um, And they get married. It's a classical comedy, right? Starts with death and ends with a wedding. They go out, they they get married. There's a wonderful celebration. Almost immediately they conceive children. And the last words of Ruth are a genealogy. So Boaz marries Ruth and she becomes his wife and he lay with her and she conceived and bore a son. They named him Obed and he was the father of Jesse, father of David. That makes Ruth the great grandmother of King David. And who comes through the line of David? The Messiah. The Messiah. This looks like a fable. This looks like a comedy. This is not a fable. This is not comedy. This is political propaganda. Ruth, the daughter of Moab, the daughter of the most despised, the most trafe people that you could imagine, she becomes the the great-grandmother of the greatest king in our history. She initiates the lineage that will lead to the redemption of the world. If you shut out Ruth, you shut out David. If not for Ruth, no Jerusalem. If not for Ruth, no Solomon and no Beit HaMikdash. If not for Ruth, no Mashiach. No redemption in the world. If you close the doors, if you put us barricaded in a fortress, if not for the other, all the rest of our history would have gone away. And it's so important that it's Moab, right? This, imagine the story is told, imagine the story is told that it's a Palestinian woman who is going to lead to the redemption of the Jewish people. Imagine it's a German woman who's going to lead to the redemption of the Jewish people. It's taking for them the clear opposite of us and saying essential to our story. Essential. Take that, Ezra. Take that, Deuteronomy. Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet is actually two prophets. Some people think it's three. 
different sections, discrete sections of Isaiah. The second or third Isaiah, depending on which book you read, starts with chapter 56, down below the Ruth text. And here Isaiah is speaking directly to the Deuteronomy text we just read in the aftermath of the exile in the and the return. He writes, As for the foreigners who attach themselves to Adonai, to serve God and to love the name of Adonai and to be God's servants, all those who keep Shabbat and do not profane it hold fast to my covenant, I will bring them to my sacred mountain and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. Their offerings and their sacrifices shall be welcome at my altar, for my house will be called a place of prayer for all people. This is a direct answer to Deuteronomy. If you looked at the Hebrew, which I did not give you, you would see mirrors of the same phraseology happening in Deuteronomy being reversed here. Being reversed here. Because Isaiah, along with Ruth, is taking on the Ezra-Deuteronomy block and saying there has to be a place in the sanctuary for the other. Not the other who's bent on our destruction, not the other who wants to carry us away, but the other who genuinely wants to join in our camp, the other who wants to be part of our community. And remember, they didn't have a concept of convert here. This means the other who's a fellow traveler. I think this includes the non-Jewish woman who schleps her kids to Hebrew school every day. She's not Jewish, but she's making possible the Jewish education of the next generation. This is the non-Jewish man who spends, God, what's your tuition now? (laughs) Who works and spends that tuition on a kid's Jewish education when he himself isn't Jewish. This is a fellow traveler. This is somebody who is supporting our people, who's tying their destiny with ours, whether or not they formally go through rituals that these people didn't know about yet. Mikvah and Mila. I want to suggest that the debate that we think of as such a contemporary debate is just the longest, the most recent outcropping of a conversation we've been having for more than two millennia. How do we hold ourselves together? How do we keep the outside world from tearing us apart? How do we keep what's essential in our core through the changing winds of history? And how do we also not shut out the possibility of redemption that can come through the other? How do we not close ourselves to what could be if we welcomed people into our tent. I don't have answers here, but I don't want us to think of the debate in parochial terms. I don't want us to think that it started with the Pew study last October. I want us to see it in a much bigger context, in a context that's about survival and salvation. And I want to call your attention last, and then I want to open for for questions and for conversation. Skip ahead to page three, and the bottom of the box, said that the first convert to Judaism wasn't Ruth, it was Abraham. Look down at the bottom. And God said to Abraham, God said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your people, from the house of your father to the land that I will show you. 
and I'll make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. Lech lecha, the call of Abraham. And Boaz said to Ruth, I have been informed of all that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband, how you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and went to a people you had never known. May God reward your actions. May blessing be full from Adonai, the God of Israel, under whose wings you come to seek refuge. It's the same charge and the same blessing. Leave what was familiar to you. Go to a place that you do not know and there be blessed and be a blessing. The author of Ruth wants us to hear in her story an echo of every story of boundary crossing that came before it. An echo of the story that gave birth to the Jewish people, an echo of the stories, a preface of the three stories I told you at the beginning of our time together. It's all about the capacity to set out on a journey and to seek their blessing and the opportunity to be blessed. I'd like to open it up for some questions and conversation. What you have to say, please. Not surprisingly, in exactly this time period. The shift from patrilineal descent, which was the biblical standard, to matrilineal descent comes at the time of Ezra and the return. Because this is when they're now trying to close up the ranks and trying to make absolutely clear of the purity of our blood and the purity of our lineage. That's when this shifts. Please. Um, was there something that, some happening that led to the counter-initiative of inclusion in the story of what, what caused that initiative of, of uh, inclusion? So why do, we understand why Ezra and Deuteronomy take up the charge to shut out. We can, we can understand that. We're worried about Jewish continuity. We're worried in this new world about Jews marrying Jews and making Jewish babies. We don't want them to disappear. And we don't have birthright yet. So this is what we need to do. What's the incentive to create a narrative of inclusion? That was the question. My guess, my hunch, and there's no way to back this up in the world, but it's my strong hunch. I think Ruth was written by one of the people whose family was broken up in Ezra's time. I think Ruth very likely is written by a woman, right? This is the biblical book, and there are a lot of scholars who think so too. This is the biblical book that pays the most attention to women's narratives and women's thinking. I think it's very likely that Ruth was written by a woman. I think it's very likely that Ruth was written by either a Jewish woman who saw her friends and other families broken up in this moment, or even possibly by a non-Jewish woman who is writing about the family she's trying to hold together. I think that in this moment, you have a narrative of defensiveness, and that also breeds a reaction of inclusivity. 
I think that's where this voice might. It's a hunch, I can't prove it. That's where this voice might have come from. Please. So what is the history of official conversion? When did that start, the official conversion? Conversion like we know it today. The question is, is when did we start with requiring circumcision, Beit Din, Mikvah, and an 18-week course at the American Jewish University <laughs> for conversion? The genesis of those rituals, at least the first time we see them written down, is in the time of the Talmud. The rabbis in the time of the Talmud write down a practice for conversion. In fact, in the early rabbinic time period, before the conversion of Constantine and Rome becomes a Christian empire, Jews are actually the most evangelical they've ever been. There was a huge move for conversion in the Roman Empire. Uh, some people suggest that up to one in 10 citizens of Rome became Jewish at one point in this time period. So they formalize a process somewhere between 100 BCE to 200 or 300 CE. And we see that process reflected in the Talmud. One of the interesting things, I was learning this with a woman who is a prospective convert who had lived in Israel for several years. I was learning this just yesterday. She had lived in Israel for a few years, has a practice closest to Orthodox and had sought an Orthodox conversion. And anybody who's ever had dealings with Orthodox conversion authorities no, it's a long road. It's a long road. Generally, the Los Angeles Beit Din takes two to three years if they accept somebody as a convert. And it's not, it's not an easy process, um, very, very rarely. And so she is currently taking one of my classes. I often get refugees from that process who have been trying to convert <laughs> for years and now would like to get it done. Um, and she said, I'd like to look at the sources. I'd like to know what's actually required. And so we open together a Gemara, and we look through. And do people know what the Gemara says is the requirement for conversion? If a non-Jew comes to a rabbi and says, I want to convert, the rabbi says, go home? No. The business about turning them away three times comes from the medieval period. It comes from a late midrash on Ruth. It has no force and effect in Jewish law. None. It comes from Ruth Rabbah, not a halachic text. Comes to the rabbi and says, I'd like to convert. The rabbi says, are you sure? Not no, but are you sure? You know that you take on responsibilities as a Jew, and you know, it's not so easy to be Jewish. And if the person responds back, the Talmud says, with four words, Ani kadai, I know, and I'm yet not worthy, you accept them immediately. The word immediately is repeated four times in this short section of Talmud. You accept them immediately. If they're male, you circumcise them immediately. After they've healed, you take them to the mikvah immediately. And afterwards, they are immediately considered like a Jew in all respects. The practice is you teach them a little bit. Mitzat mitzvot, a few of the mitzvahs, and then get them into the process. The Talmud's conception of conversion to Judaism is a process that could be completed 
I suppose for a circumcised male could be completed, or for a woman could be completed in a day, maybe in a week. It's actually very hard to make a justification for the 18-week class that I teach on halakhic grounds. Like it may very well be that this is a violation to force people to go through months and months of process if somebody comes and says, a neodeva any kadai. Don't tell my students that though. <laughs> so that, that process, it gets more and more drawn out over the course of Jewish history as we get, with good reason, more and more xenophobic. Please. Was there a class element in this as well, in this fight between, between uh, who would be a Jew and who would be a Jew? I ask that in part because in Ezra and Nehemiah, there is uh, the, the position that those who were already in, the, in Israel who didn't come back from Babylon were not to participate in the rebuilding of the temple. Mm -hmm. Like they were a lower class. Mm -hmm. And it was them that were doing the intermarrying, those who had stayed behind. So is this distinguishing between the pure and the impure, between the different classes the of people? The upper class went to Babylonia. Right. It's an interesting argument. I, I hadn't thought it through in those terms. That's a really, it's an interesting argument. I don't, I will have to think on that. And you'll have to invite me back. <laughs> I know that Judaism is probably the only religion or one of the only religions that your Jewishness is determined through your mother. It's the, in fact, the only religion in which your Jewishness is returned, determined through your mother. Okay. Yeah. So every other religion is through the father. What I, is that correct? Islam, Catholicism, for sure, I know those two. Not being a scholar of other religions, I try very hard to not say their theology publicly. Okay. Um, I know in Islam, um, the standard is patrilineal, and I don't know much beyond that. What would be the implications, though, for okay, you, Dahlia? The question is, why did that happen? Because I've heard different theories about it, and in terms of conversion, does it make it more or less difficult? Or not? does it not affect it at all? Well, from a historical standpoint, why does that happen? I think the best argument for that, because they don't explain the shift, but I think the clearest argument is that you didn't have paternity testing. You're always sure who the mama is, and you're not necessarily always sure who the papa is, witness daytime television. And if your concern is about blood, if you're not so concerned about people float in, people float out, the boundaries are pretty porous, then you don't have to worry about it so much. If the concern is blood, then let's be double, triple sure that we are in fact getting real certified Jews. What are the implications today? I'll tell you um, two years ago now, I had two close female friends that I grew up with in religious school in Long Beach and we went to middle school together and we went to high school together. Both of them um, met Jewish men in, within the same six months. Both of them got engaged within the same three months and both of them planned their weddings for within the same month. One, both of them have only one Jewish parent. One the father, one the mother. I was called by one, the one with the Jewish mother, and asked if I could do the wedding. And I said, yes, I would be delighted to do your wedding. 
few weeks later, I was called by the other and asked, could I do your wedding? I'd love, you're going to be marrying me. You're also going to be marrying my best friend. And I said, I would love to do your wedding. We have to make a stop at the mikvah first. And that was six months of letters being written back and forth in a lot of pain. And she decided to go to the mikvah. And the day after she went to the mikvah, she called me and said, I think I don't want you to do my wedding. Because the whole thing is at this point just so painful. I think I'd rather just have a secular officiant. I am a conservative Jew and I'm committed to communal standards and one of our communal standards is matrilineal descent. I don't challenge that standard, but I do think it deserves a robust conversation about what is the meaningful difference between these two women and is the purity of blood and the assurance of maternity or paternity worth the pain that I was asked religiously to inflict. I don't offer an answer one way or another, but I do think it's time for a more robust conversation about that. Please, and then. So, so you know, the, the main version of the Talmud was written in Babylon by the Jews that remained there. Yes. Which we know must have intermarried quite heavily. Could that be the reason why your discussion of the Gomorrah actually uh, uh, makes it that simple to accept somebody into the faith? The fact that they were the authors of the Talmud, the ones who were setting the rules, are also living in the center of the cosmopolitan world and are certainly mixing with non-Jews, if not potentially, who knows, having a brother-in-law who wasn't born Jewish. Perhaps. All I can say is perhaps. But it's, a, it's an interesting thesis also to present. Please. Um. My understanding is we don't actively proselytize, we don't go seeking converts, and and I was just wondering, in your study of conversion, uh, these competing schools or any other aspect of it, can you explain that, that why we don't do that, or, or was there a time when we that debate came up and it was encouraged or spoken of? We don't do that because, for the most part, and this is where I'll end, Ezra and Deuteronomy 1. For most of Jewish history, Ezra and Deuteronomy 1. We adopted the position that said, the only way that we can survive in a world where we are a minority is to put up walls, sometimes physical walls, between us and the rest of the world. And there's good wisdom in that. Right? We're still here and the Babylonians aren't. We're still here and the Assyrians aren't. We're still here and nobody worships the gods of Olympus anymore. And part of that has to do with the fact that we did maintain boundaries between us and them. And in the last hundred years of those boundaries blurring, we face an existential challenge about whether there will be Jews a hundred years from now. We do. So I'm not saying that there's no wisdom in Ezra and Deuteronomy. In large part, it's kept us alive. I'm saying also that I think in the world in which we live, in the world in which the next generation is growing up, if we don't find a way to include the narrative of Ruth and Isaiah in the conversation, it may be just as toxic to us 
as it would have been if we had forgotten about Ezra and Deuteronomy. That if we don't find some way to create boundaries that are big enough to include an expansive view of what a Jewish family is and an expansive view of what a Jewish community is, we run a grave risk. So I don't think that the answer is going out and knocking on doors. But it's interesting. We have ideas that are worth entering into the marketplace of ideas. There are a ton of people. We get very uncomfortable with this. But the fact is, is that in America, Jews are the most liked religious group in the country. You see the study? It was about six weeks ago. Came out, Pew, the Pew Center, the Pew Center that predicts our death. The Pew Center put out a study that said, what group do you, what religious groups do you have the most favorable and the least favorable impressions of? The group with the most favorable rating in all of American religious life are the Jews. More people like the Jews than anybody else. We're not good at that because we're used to everybody hating us. But it turns out everybody likes us. We're hip. Watch television. <laughs> right on every TV show, there are jokes that, <clears throat> do the rest of these people laugh at TV? Like they're just, the Daily Show is just for us. <laughs> and yet, so, uh, I think that what the future is going to look like of what a more expansive Judaism could be, what a more inclusive Judaism could be, what a more embracing Judaism could be, what a Judaism could be that worries less about its walls and worries more about its open doors, I think may be a prescription for how we're going to survive for the next thousand years. Um, yeah, thank you very much.